Well, have y'all heard the story of Felix the Flying Frog? Anyone? No. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to tell you the story of Felix the Flying Frog. Once upon a time, there lived a man named Clarence who had a pet frog named Felix. Now, Clarence lived a modestly comfortable existence off what he earned working at the Wawa, but he wanted to be rich. He wanted to be filthy rich. Felix, he said one day, hit by sudden inspiration, we're going to be rich. I'm going to teach you to fly. Felix, of course, was terrified at the prospect. I can't fly, you twit. I'm a canary. I mean, I'm a frog, not a canary. Clarence, disappointed at the initial response, told Felix, that negative attitude of yours could be a real problem. We're going to remain poor, and it will be all your fault. So Felix and Clarence began their work on flying. On the first day of the flying lesson, Clarence could barely control his excitement. Clarence explained that their apartment building had 15 floors and that each day Felix would jump out of a window starting with the first floor and eventually getting to the top floor. After each jump, they would analyze how well he flew, isolate the most effective flying techniques, and implement the improved process for the next flight. So by the time he reached the top floor, surely Felix would be able to fly. Felix pleaded for his life, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. He just doesn't understand how important this is, Clarence thought. He doesn't see the big picture. So with that, Clarence opened the first floor window and threw Felix out. He landed with a thud. The next day, poised for a second flying lesson, Felix again begged not to be thrown out the window. Clarence told Felix about how one must always expect resistance when introducing new, innovative plans. And with that, he threw Felix out of the second story window. Thud. Now, this is not to say that Felix wasn't trying his very best. On the fifth day, he flapped his legs vainly trying to fly. On the sixth day, he even tied a a little small red cape on and tried to think Superman thoughts. Still nothing. Did not work. By the seventh day, Felix, accepting his fate, no longer begged for mercy. He simply looked at Clarence and said, you know you're killing me, right? With that, Clarence pointed out that Felix's performance so far had been less than exemplary, failing to meet any of the milestone goals he had set for him. So finally, Felix said, just open the window. He opened the window and Felix leaped out, taking careful aim at the large jagged rock by the corner of the building. Felix went to that great lily pad in the sky. Uh, No, I should have told you this is not like a story you'd hear on the Z. So um, uh, it's not bedtime. All right, yeah. So Clarence was extremely upset by this. As, As his project had failed to meet a single objective that he had set out to accomplish, Felix had not only failed to fly, he didn't even learn how to steer his fall. He didn't take Clarence's advice to fall smarter, not harder. The only thing left for Clarence to do was to analyze the process and to try to determine where it went wrong. And after much thought, Clarence smiled and said, next time I'm getting a smarter frog. Okay, so why did I start off telling you this horrific fable? Because I think this story actually shows us how many of us choose to live as Christians. Many of us live our lives like Felix the Frog. Or 
like Clarence, or probably maybe more accurately, both. We try to to live the Christian life. We try so hard to live the Christian life, putting away our sin and striving for perfection, all the while telling ourselves if we just try harder, if we just uh, devote more time to our devotions, if we just read the Bible more, if we just prayed more, things we would get better. But you see, our problem isn't about our faithfulness and it isn't about kind of living a supernatural life of victory over sin. Our problem is not going to be fixed with more programs or better methods. Our problem is that we have taken the good news, the best news ever given to the world, run it through a religious grid and made something unattainable of it. The problem is we've taken the good news and turned it into bad news. So let's think about how we know if we've done that. Um, uh, how do you pray? Examine your prayer life. What, what, what kinds of things do you pray for? Now, my guess is most of us uh, pray for healing for those that we know that are sick. We're, you know, we're asking God to, 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 to heal people. Um, probably many of us are praying for the brokenness that we're seeing in our world today and just saying, God, we, we need you to intervene. But when we pray for ourselves... What, does, what do your prayers for yourself look like? If you're like me, uh, a lot of my prayers are that I would get better. I pray that I'd be more loving, like God make me less judgmental. I pray like, all right, God, could you just, could you take away that one sin that just keeps kind of nagging at me that I just keep falling into? Sometimes I even make a bargain with God, like if there's something that I think like, oh, I really need this, and I'll say like, God, all right, if you just give me this, and I promise I'll never do that again, right? See, most, most Christians I know, myself included, spend a lot of time trying to get better, and our prayers reflect that. Now, we're about to enter into the second part of the letter to the Ephesians, which gets very practical application-y. Um, and, and in the second part of Ephesians, we, we start to get kind of a list of do's and don'ts of, of how we are to live the Christian life. And it, it starts right there in the first verse of chapter four. This is what we're going to look at next week. First verse of chapter four says this, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So the second part of Ephesians starts saying, all right, now that, now that you've heard all that God's done, now that you, you've seen in, in the first three chapters of God's plan and in his plan to bring grace and hope to the entire world through what Jesus has done and through the way the church moves in the world, now that you've heard all that, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We're going to hear a bunch about things we need to stop doing. We're going to hear a bunch about the things we need to start doing. We're going to learn what it means to be a good husband and wife, what it is to be a, a, a good parent or a child, what to be a good worker. There's going to be a lot of do better, be better for the rest of the summer. So what we're going to talk about today is so important. And Paul knew that it would be important. That's why uh, Paul, before he gives us this guide to how to live the Christian life, he prays for us. 
And in what he prays for us, we find the secret of not living a life where it looks a lot more like Felix and Clarence, but the life that God has called us to. So let's look at that together. We're going to look at this prayer. And again, this, this, this is in the middle of the book. Uh, Paul's writing along and then he's like, all right, wait a second. I need to just stop and I need to pray this for you. So let's listen to what Paul prays for us, for the church. We're in Ephesians 3 and I'm going to start in the 14th verse. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that, it is, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So what does Paul pray for? He prays that we would know the love of Christ. He doesn't pray that we would get better. He doesn't pray that we would feel convicted or guilty. He doesn't even pray that our struggle with sin would vanish. He prays that we would know, and not just know, but experience that we are loved. I don't know about you, but to me, that's astounding. That Paul, in the middle of this letter, just stops and says, hey, I just want to pray. And I want to pray for you. And the thing I want to pray for you is that you would experience that you are loved. Now, Paul's writing to Christians. This letter is, is written to the church. He's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to Christians. And, and to become a Christian, one has to know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A Christian knows he or she is loved by God. That's what makes them a Christian. Yet, it is what Paul chooses to pray for Christians. Why? Well, I think it's one thing to have money in the bank. It's another thing to draw it. You could have a billion dollars and still live very poor. It's one thing to know you are loved by God, and it's another thing to experience that love, to draw on that love. And Paul, that's what Paul's praying. He's praying, I, I want the church, I want these people to not only know cognitively about the love of God, but I want them to have experiences with it. I want them to know how to draw on that love. Blaise Pascal, um, a genius, uh, an extremely cerebral man, a, a, a tremendously uh, intellectual man. Uh, he was the great mathematician, the man who was really responsible for, for laying all the groundwork for what we now study as probability and statistics. So just brilliant man. Um, when he died... An experience he had with God was found written in one of his journals. And not only that, a particular portion of that journal he had sewn into his coat 
pocket uh, so that it always be close by. And I want to read to you uh, about uh, this experience that Blaise Pascal wrote. He wrote this. He said, in the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, the day of St. Clement, from about half past 10 in the evening until half an hour after midnight, fire. And it's just that word. It's just, it's just fire. It's in all capital, call capital letters. It's on its own line. Uh, this is what he had uh, put inside his coat pocket. And then he goes on to write, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certainty, period. Joy, period. Certainty, period. Emotion, period. Sight, period. Joy, period. Forgetfulness of the world and all outside of God. The world has not known thee, but now I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, do not leave me. Let me not ever be separated from you. What's happening there? This brilliant thinker is having an emotional experience with the love of God. Blaise Pascal went from knowing about the love of Christ to actually experiencing it. Now, if you're here, you might be a visitor and maybe you're completely new to the Christian faith and you don't, you don't even know who Christ is really or, or what he did or what the love of Christ is. But, but probably a, a good majority of us know the story of Jesus. We know things about the love of Christ. But have you experienced it? Have you been praying that you would experience it? That's what Paul's praying for us. He's saying, I... I I want you to experience this. I'm not praying that you get better. I'm not praying that you stop sinning. I'm praying that you would have an experience with the love of Christ. I want to read to you um, a part of an email I received from someone who, who goes here to this campus. His name is Brian, and I think I saw him earlier. I think, yeah, there he is. All right, he's here. Um, and I asked his permission, so he knows uh, that I'm going to share this with you all. Um, Brian wrote me this a couple weeks ago. He said, I grew up in a Catholic house and at a very early age, I began to distance myself from the church. I have struggled over the years with religion and hypocrisy that's found in many people who call themselves Christians. I have been lost for a very long time. I'm a very rational and analytical person and God is not something I could touch or measure. My fiance and I have attended services in Lake Mary for nearly two years. Um, I gotta stop there for a second and just say, um, so many of you sacrificed so much to even make Lake Mary a reality. Um, and so thank you. Thank you that this has been a place um, that Brian and his fiance could attend for two years. Um, so he says, I, I, we've been attending for nearly two years. And mostly during the sermon, I would typically analyze the teaching to search for fallacies. Now, I will say I would take away tiny bits on how to be a better person, and I enjoyed being around the people who go to the church, so I didn't really mind coming. And if I'm honest, on rare occasions, strong emotions would rise, but I would quickly push them down. 
Then he goes on to talk about this one particular sermon and, and how he was attentive and how he was hanging on every word and then how he began to really listen to the words of the song that followed the sermon and how in listening to those words, listening to those words being sung by you all, he just completely broke down, began uh, weeping uncontrollably. And he says that, that later that day, uh, on, uh, he, he's, he's doing bath time with his kids. He's got two kids. And all of a sudden, he has this urge to go on a walk. And it's like he needs to go on the walk right then, like right now, like right during bath time. And so he does. And he writes this. He says, it was about 8 p.m. and heavy thunderstorms had just rolled through. So I was met with re rosy red light when I opened the door. Steam was rising from the streets, and as I walked out of my neighborhood, I saw the most beautiful sky with beautiful red clouds and streams of sun pushing through. I turned and looked in the other direction and saw the dark thunderclouds laced with lightning. Both were equally astounding, and I finally noticed the awesomeness of God's creation. I've said prayers before, but this was the first time I truly prayed. I was not afraid. I was not analyzing, uninhibited. Walking back into my home, I went to my eight-year-old daughter's room to say goodnight. She is recovering from a traumatic injury to her hand with the high probability of having her finger amputated. I told her how I had been scared and saddened by her energy, injury, but that during my walk, I found peace in whatever the outcome will be. I've never talked to her about praying before. After saying goodnight and halfway down the stairs, she called me back into her room and asked me something she has never asked me before, to pray together as a family. And we did. What had happened? Brian experienced the love of Christ. And I have an update. I found this out after the first service. I didn't know this when I, when I preached at nine. So you guys get a little bonus. Um, uh, her, 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 she's going to keep her finger. Uh, and that's amazing, right? Um, but one thing uh, that, that I love about Brian's email is that uh, he said before, uh, during the sermons, he would find tiny, I don't know if he needed to say the word tiny, but tiny bits on how to be a better person. Um, But since he has found the love of Christ, uh, I've gotten to talk to his fiance, and, and, and it's amazing to hear her talk about the man that he's becoming. What have you settled for? Whether you're a Christian or not, what have you settled for? Have you settled for tiny bits of being a better person? Or are you begging and pleading and asking for the love of Christ? That's what Paul wants for us. I want, I want us to zero in on just a couple of the verses for a few minutes uh, that are in this, this prayer. Verses uh, 17 through 19, and I'm going to start kind of in the middle of 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's this word in verse 18, grasp. Now, the word uh, doesn't mean to know, and it doesn't even just mean to, to feel or experience. Uh, the word in the Greek is the word katalambano. And this word means to ambush. 
It appears in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, Paul says, look out, judgment day is coming. Don't let it surprise you. And he uses the word catalambano here as well, which makes sense. Uh, it makes sense in that context, right? He's saying, All right, you better be on your guard because when you're ambushed, you're surprised. And then you're put under control. See, you become conquered by your surprise. That's, that's kind of this idea of, of catalambano. And so Paul is praying that you and I would be conquered by our surprise of God's love. There's another place that it comes up in Acts 10 uh, where the apostle Peter is, is forced to deal with his own racism. The apostle Peter has this great vision in which God tells him, he says, hey, Peter, you've got to let the Gentiles into the church as equal. It's not enough to just welcome them. You have to want them. It's not enough that they can just kind of be a part of it on some level. No, they have to be equal with everyone else. And Peter replies, at that moment, I realize God does not have any favorites. Now, Peter had known that for a long time. There are all kinds of places in the Bible that says that, that God doesn't play favorites. But Peter says it's in this moment that he realizes, and he uses the word catalambano, he realizes this truth, this thing that he had always known, but he didn't really know. See, suddenly something he knew became real to him. It ambushed him and it changed him. He was conquered under its surprise. Now, there are all kinds of uh, powerful forces uh, that work in our hearts. Um, for, for example, uh, maybe you have a, a father who one time said to you, uh, you'll never amount to anything. And although he said it to you when you were 14 years old, um, somehow you find yourself living out of that reality. That, that, that thought is still so present in your heart that, that a lot of your motivation is based on either agreeing with or trying to disprove that statement. You and all, we all have moments or things said to us or things done to us or things we did in our past that, that when they're brought up, even though we know they happened a long time ago, it's still like we're experiencing them. They still have control over us. And so when our Father in heaven says, I will never leave you or forsake you, I gave my son to die for you, that when I look at you, because of my son, I am well pleased. See, when you, when you hear your Father God say that, what Paul is praying is that that would ambush you. That whatever your earthly father has said to you would, 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 would just so fade behind the voice of your heavenly father. That, that that is how you begin to change. That is how your heart begins to change. That is how you and I become more and more the people that God had in mind when he thought us up. That we are ambushed by the surprising love of Christ. So Paul's praying that. He's saying, I'm praying that you would be ambushed by uh, how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ is for you. When we take communion, uh, communion is, is, our, is our way of physically 
remembering not how much we love God, but how much God loved us. And I'm so thankful that we're taking communion every week uh, during this series, especially now that we're heading into the second part of Ephesians. Uh, because my fear is we're gonna get a lot of great information. And Paul, I mean, there's, there's so much richness in the last three chapters of Ephesians, but you and I, we could take that information in just like Felix took the information in from Clarence. We can take it in in a way that actually is going to drive us further away from God's love. It can move us further into despair. But because every week we're going to end with communion, we are going to be reminded exactly what Paul prays that we would know. The depth of Christ's love. And so uh, to prepare to take communion, I think we should take just a few minutes and think about that. To think about God's love. Think about how wide God's love is. What does it mean that God's love is wide? Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, his his arms were spread wide and he had said, foretelling of his death on the cross, he said that when I am lifted up, meaning when I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. See, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's saying, this is how it happens. This is how people that seem so far from God, this is how people that you would never expect are brought in. And it actually happens right there in that moment before Jesus' body is even taken off the cross. We know that the the Roman centurion, when he sees Jesus die, he says, oh man, surely this was the son of God. It's already beginning to happen. We're already beginning to see how wide God's love is. In Revelation 5, 9, it says, You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your past or your choices. It doesn't even matter if you are standing on the edge of hell. All, anyone can be saved. God's love is that wide. So that when Christ is lifted up on the cross, he declares, my love is so much wider than you could even imagine. How often have you just sat and just prayed about that? Just say, God, let me see how wide it is. Maybe there's someone in your life that you just think is way beyond the reach. Maybe their heart is so hard. Maybe their life choices are, are so just opposed to anything that, that, that would look like what we're gonna study the next few weeks. Um, maybe you're just like, there, there's... Maybe you have no hope for them. Why have you sat and just prayed, God, I want to grasp. I want to experience how wide your love is. And maybe where we have to start is with how how wide his love had to be in order to get us. What about the length? When was the last time you just sat and just thought about the length of, of the love of Christ? We're told in Revelation that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. What does that mean? It means before you and I were even a thought in our parents' mind, before before even there was an earth for us to be born into, that Jesus had already decided that we were worth dying for, that he waited for us, 
that he continues to wait. For those of us who are still running, and some of us here maybe are still running, we, we, we can know that we have a God who continues to wait. That's what's so beautiful about Jesus's parables in Luke 15 when he, when he talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, is that we have a God who before the foundation of the earth decided that he was gonna love us, that we were worth it, and he's willing to wait. The length of God's love for us. What about the height? What does it mean, the, the height of Christ's love? Well, Jesus uh, told us that he died so that you and I could be where he is. In John 17, he prays this prayer. And in praying this prayer, he says, Father, I want them to have the glory that you and I had for all eternity. The glory that we had before the world was created. And then he tells his disciples, he says, not only that, where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you because in my father's house, there are many mansions. See, Christ's love for us takes us to heights unimaginable. Have you, when was the last time you just thought about that? Like that, that what Christ did for you is going to elevate you to this place that you don't deserve to a kind of glory that existed before all the brokenness and the sin that has ravaged your life had taken hold. And what of the depths? This is where Christianity is not like any other religion. Other religions say, you live this certain way and you'll be blessed. But Christianity says, we, we, ha we don't, we haven't lived this way. And, and everyone knows that. I don't care what you believe. Everyone knows you have not lived as good as you ought. And what Christianity says is that we have a God who entered into our world, into the brokenness of our world, that took on our scorn and loneliness and pain and rejection. He took all of that on. And not only did he take that on, that on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? He's experiencing a kind of depth that, that, that you and I will never experience because of him. You and I might have gotten to the depths in our own sin. We, we might have gotten to some pretty dark places in our life with our sin. But the love of Christ went even deeper than that. This is what we should be praying for. We should be praying that we would understand this. Not only understand this, but that we would experience this. Because as we experience this love of Christ, that's how we change. Yeah, there's going to be some helpful things over the next few weeks little tiny bits of how to be a better person. But what's going to change you and what's going to change me is grasping this love. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray and ask for that to happen. Father God, we do. We, we want that. Uh, Father, our prayers oftentimes are, 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 are just, we just, we just want to get better because we want to please you and, and we know what you want for our lives and we know how often uh, we, we can't measure up. We can't do it, but but Father, we, th we thank you 
that what you're asking of us is to sit and receive your love. To thank you and rejoice over your love. To, to repent over the ways in which we have sought love else, other places. Other. And so, Father, we just ask that as a, not only individually, but as a church community, that we would grasp hold of this love. That we would allow this love to transform our hearts more into the image of your son for the sake of all those out there who are trying so hard to measure up, who don't know that they are already loved. So Father, do that work in us. Continually bring that prayer up in our hearts. And Father, as we partake of communion, I pray as we remember what you have done for us, that we would leave here changed changed not because of our own effort, but changed because we have grasped a little more deeply the love you have for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.